This is the Horse Radio Network. Greetings, everyone. Coach Jen here, and thanks for tuning in to Horse Tip Daily, episode 1446. Today, we have a conversation with Dr. Brooks about anhydrosis, the inability or reduced ability to sweat. And we're going to get right to this conversation after we hear from our sponsor, Wintex Saddles. Looking for a saddle that's affordable, durable, and comfortable for you and your horse? It sounds like you're looking for a Wintech. Wintech saddles combine world-leading innovations and high-tech materials in a lightweight, weatherproof, and easy-to-care-for saddle. The comprehensive Wintech range offers not only cutting-edge designs, but also reaches new standards in fit, comfort, and performance benefits for both you and your horse. It's easy to see why Wintech is the world's number one synthetic saddle brand. With styles for any discipline and confirmation, there's a Wintech saddle for you. Visit Wintech-saddles.com today to view Wintech's full range of saddles and reach a new level of comfort for you and your horse. I'm so happy to welcome back to the show Dr. Samantha Brooks, Associate Professor of Equine Physiology at the University of Florida. Thanks for stopping by, Dr. Brooks. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. And we always have interesting conversations when you guys call. So. We love having you on because you, you make really serious science um, understandable. <laughs> well, thank you. I try. <laughs> well, you know, if we understand it, we're a lot more likely to take those those amazing research projects that you guys do and use that information to help our horses. We're going to ask our veterinarians because we go, ah, I understand that a little bit. I need to ask my vet. Absolutely. And that's key because, you know, this is why we do science. Myself and most people in my lab, we're all horse people. And we want to to do things that can help our horses and their horse owners. And if the word doesn't get out, um, it doesn't get used. So thank you for helping us get the word out. That's true. There you go. (laughs) Well, very recently, you guys finished up some research into anhydrosis, which is a very confusing um, syndrome disease that horses have because in the past, we really haven't known a lot about it. And treatment regimens are limited at best. So let's start this conversation with a really brief Reader's Digest of what is anhydrosis? Sure. So anhydrosis is loss of the ability to sweat. And uh, among horse people, we sometimes call it a dry coat or a non-sweater. Horses are unique in that they use that surface, full body surface sweat as one of their primary ways to regulate their body temperature. Humans are one of the only other mammalian species that rely this much on sweat. I don't know. Maybe this is why we get along so well with horses. Good <laughs> generally the both of us sweating when we do things. But um, it's really kind of an interesting physiological mechanism because it's pretty costly. You know, the moisture and, and good quality drinking water, that's hard to come by in many environments. So um, given that it's very specialized and very important, when something goes wrong with it, things go really wrong. So. Um, some horses will lose the ability to sweat in their training uh, in response to an increase in the the um, difficulty of the the training regimen that they're working through, or uh, sometimes in in response to a sudden heat wave. And those episodes of anhydrosis, we usually have a good explanation for. You can have 
training fatigue or an electrolyte imbalance, you know, the same thing happens to people, especially runners. Um, and, and we can figure that out and, and correct it either with rest or supplemental electrolytes, things like that. But some horses will develop anhydrosis that is prolonged and does not respond to any of the obvious uh, changes. So things like electrolytes or our vets sometimes look at their hormones to check for an endocrine problem. In those animals, we haven't had any good explanation for what was causing them to lose the ability to sweat. And, and it's a big deal for horses. So unlike humans, most of them can't move into the air conditioning when they get too hot. So even in northern climates, when you get those hot summer days, it may only last a few days up north, but for those few days, it's easy to get critically overheated. And if you're a performance horse, the uh, inability to cool yourself is immediately a deal breaker. You know, horses are big muscular animals. And when those muscles are working, they generate lots of heat. And if they can't dissipate that heat, it becomes life-threatening very quickly. In the mild forms, uh, what horse owners often see are things like their horse might be panting. Um, and, and sometimes they think that's actually asthma-like signs. Um, because it's breathing, right? So you don't always connect breathing to their skin. Anyway, yeah. That, <laughs> well, why is my yeah, horse right? panting? Why you doesn't know? he just sweat? He's panting. Oh my gosh, there's something it's, wrong. Well, yeah. And especially like if you're familiar right? with dogs, <laughs> panting is a sign of stress if they cl- yeah. have their mouth closed and, they, and they're breathing hard. So yeah, I can understand that. For sure. But horses don't stick their tongue out, right? When they pant, I hope so not. it really just looks like they're breathing hard. Yeah. yeah? Um, they get lazy, like they don't want to work because they, they get hot and they feel ex- that heat exhaustion more, more quickly. So you get performance drop off. Um, you know, broodmares might, might start to struggle reproductively. So you get this diverse set of signs that they're just kind of off. And if you aren't carefully examining their skin in the early stages, they will still sweat a little. And so you'll still might have a little bit of a wet saddle pad or wet under the girth, but you may not have put two and two together until they absolutely stop sweating. And and if that happens, particularly in the South U.S., where we have a lot of heat and a lot of humidity, it can quickly become uh, a life-threatening situation. So do do we know how long this syndrome has been around? Do, is, it, is, there one of the, is it one of those things that, you know, it's been around, but we've only started to really recognize it recently? Mm-hmm. Well, there are some historical accounts going back to the the early half of the 1900s, uh, where they certainly noted that this happened in horses, but they didn't have a solution for it. Um, and they didn't at that time really notice any trend. So um, it, it's really been around quite a while. Hmm. I think more recently, we've become more aware of it, um, just as we're working through optimizing our exercise, you know, physiology for our horses. Um, and I, I think that we're starting to get the word out more frequently. Mm-hmm. You know, the real key study was a work done by um, our colleagues over here at the vet school, uh, led by Dr. Mackay. They examined the pedigrees and the breeds of horses who had anhydrosis. Because up to that point, you know, some people thought it might run in families, but they weren't sure. What they discovered is that a family history gave you about 20 times the risk of getting the disease. So, that was right away a big red flag that this might have a genetic component. Interesting. Sounds so, like bad news. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like really bad news. But sometimes it's actually good news because 
Um, we have these great genetic mapping tools so that if we know absolutely nothing about a disease, it might be okay because once the genome shows us which gene is involved, that tells us what kind of body process is being interrupted. And then once we know which process to target, we can start to design additional experiments to figure out how to treat or prevent the disease. So some some curious folks started to sit down and look very, very carefully at horses who had been diagnosed and their pedigrees, which led them to say, hmm, there might be a family propensity to get this problem. And that's when you jumped up and said, hey, we can do some research. So how did you go about setting up how you were going to research this? Well, it's it's a bit of a challenge because anhydrosis does look like a lot of other um, conditions. And it's a little bit different. It's difficult to diagnose with good precision. So there is a specialized test where we uh, inject a, a tiny amount of a compound that's a little bit like adrenaline. It's, it's actually terbutaline. But when you inject a tiny droplet of that under the skin, all the little sweat glands above that droplet just whew, start sweating to be banned, right? So on a normal horse, you can inject these tiny droplets and you can actually measure how much sweat is secreted from that little spot on the horse. It doesn't really bother the horse much other than the tiny injections. You know, they're kind of like little fly bites. On an anhydrotic horse, you can see right away. Even if you put uh, that drug right there in a concentrated droplet, those sweat glands cannot manage to do a thing. Even though we have this nifty test, most field veterinarians don't use it very often. They tend to diagnose it more based on exclusion. So they'll rule out things like asthma or electrolyte imbalance or hormonal problems. And then they'll say, well, you must have anhydrosis and there's nothing we can do about that. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the first challenge, the first challenge of the study was that we needed to define what the disease was. And as much as we would love to have every horse get that very specific skin test for sweat, we ended up constructing a survey. We had about 300 horse, horse owners from mostly from the southern U.S., but we had answers from around the world because this, this disease is sort of unappreciated in many, many corners of the globe. <laughs> um, and they sent in histories. You know, my horse is uh, able to work in the morning, but not in the afternoon or is completely uncomfortable by May through June. And we gathered all this historical information to create a scale of anhydrosis severity. And then we compared the severity of that disease to a panel of about a half million genetic markers across the genome. And using some fancy statistics, we just looked for the markers that were most commonly found in the horses with this severe disease. And using our handy genetic map, we find where that marker is and look for the genes in the neighborhood and start studying what kind of biology those genes contribute to. Sounds really easy that way, doesn't it? It does sound easy, but it sounds to me like there were some really big brains and even bigger computers involved. Yes, there are definitely computers involved. And this is something, you know, I, I love genetics. It's a lot of fun. And I love horses. But had you told me that in order to combine those two things, I would have to learn a fair bit of computer programming and a lot of math and statistics, I probably would have balked. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, no. But um, these are these are great tools, and that's the challenge. It's when we go from genetics to genomics and working on the whole genome scale, you have to shift to computers. So 
those of you out there who are thinking about going into a career in genetics, make sure you work on your computer programming and your math skills. (laughs) Good news is if you have those skills, it's easy to get a job. (laughs) (laughs) To make your job a lot easier. So once you did all this and you concluded at the end of it that, that there is a genetic component, is there going to be, or should there be, or need, does there need to be further research that will tell you it definitely does or definitely doesn't? Or is, is, are the conclusions of this study saying that we know for a fact that there's a component, but it's only a component? Did I phrase that question well? I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think you've got it, right? So this is just one study and, and science is always an ongoing process. And it, we definitely would love to do some continuing work. The struggle we have right now is while this is an important condition for the horse industry, horse industry struggles to get themselves organized and, and to fund, um, science. So we actually ran out of funding, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, um, they're definitely, I sadly, I mean, it's very, very important, but it's not quite as high profile as things like colic. So. Um, Although there's probably there are, it is not an infrequent condition. It's just not recently. I'm surprised how common Uh, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Living at living in Florida, any horse that's afflicted with this, even to a minor degree you hear about because you, you know, you live in the South and it's hot and humid so much of the year, it can be really detrimental to their health. Um, So for somebody who has a horse that they suspect could be anhydrotic, um, what is the best way to have your veterinarian diagnose that problem? <laughs> well, I think the gold standard is still going to be the skin test because there are there are easier um, treatment options for horses who have a more run-of-the-mill case of anhydrosis. Um, where things get more challenging is when they do have what we call the idiopathic type. And a large proportion of those horses, based on our study, will have these genetic markers. And genetic markers are pretty inexpensive. So if you've gone through a lot of uh, exclusionary uh, diagnostics and you haven't found an answer, it doesn't. It, it's not a bad idea at all to run the genetic test, even though we're still in the preliminary stages of, of getting uh, these results out and field tested, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, you know, if you're thinking about a pre-purchase exam or breeding horses, you know, um, comprehensive genetic testing is a good idea anyway, but you bet being here in Florida before I buy a horse, I'm gonna, I'm gonna double check just, double check that, just yeah. in case, just in case, you know, it's not going to be, yeah, it's not going to be a hundred percent, but anhydrosis is so frustrating because we have no, absolutely no scientifically proven treatment, not beer, you know, not nutritional. Well, that was, that None was my next question is you have a horse who, <laughs> who has anhydrosis. What now? Well, um, in, you know, for those of you who have a horse with anhydrosis right now, the best thing you can do for that horse is provide supplemental cooling. So a lot of our horse owners will shift to actually bring them into the barn during the day. And they, if they're still going to ride, they'll ride at night when the temperatures are cooler. Um, they might wet that horse um, externally. So he can't sweat to wet himself, but you can certainly do frequent cold hosing install barn misters, or there are some specialized um, absorbent kind of blanket materials that will release that moisture slowly that can help. And then you want to evaporate that moisture once you put it on the horse. So stall fans are fantastic. Get that air moving. What we're hopeful will happen in the future, though, if we can pick this research back up with some renewed funding, is that the gene that 
contributes to idiopathic anhydrosis in the horse uh, is a, a channel that moves ions. So ions are things like salt and chloride, right, are electrolytes. It moves those ions across the cell membrane. Um, and actually, there's a number of diseases in people that impact the same type of cellular machinery, those ion channels that move those electrolytes across membranes. One of the most famous of those is cystic fibrosis. Did not now, know that. The benefit there is, right, so there's some functional similarity. And, and people with cystic fibrosis often have problems not only with their lungs and their mucous membranes and digestion, but also their sweat. So now you can kind of see, ah, here we go. Now we've got the connection. Now, the great thing about that similarity is that we have put millions of dollars into studying cystic fibrosis because it impacts a lot of people. And that includes developing a number of drug compounds to help to fix those difficulties with your ion channels. So the the hopeful, long-term, pie-in-the-sky hopeful message here is that if we can chase down this ion channel hypothesis, there might be pharmaceutical drugs already developed that could potentially help to uh, maybe prevent development of the condition in the horse or um, alleviate some of the symptoms of the disease before the sweat glands become too damaged to be able to function. Cool. So, oh, wow, I could just talk about this forever, but we're kind of running out of time. So if for folks sure. who want to uh, read up on all of the fascinating studies that you have done and other things going on at the University of Florida, where can they appropriately stalk you guys online? <laughs> well, um, our website, we are finally starting to get it caught up during quarantine. I have to say that we were we were definitely in triage mode. And website, ironically, was not top of the list while we were all trying to learn to Zoom, right? But our website is US Equine Genetics, all one word, dot org. And we do have a recent um, extension publication actually talking about anhydrosis. So through our UF ISIS extension service, you can get that short PDF. Um, I'll work on getting our links up to date. So we have a, a link available uh, there on the website. And We've got a couple um, short video clips that are going to be coming out pretty soon along with our collaborators over at the vet school. So cool. uh, there's there's quite a bit there. If you start Googling UF and hydrosis genetics, you can find us pretty quickly. Cool. And I've been watching some of your videos. They're really good. Again, because you make super duper science <laughs> understandable. So thank you very much. <laughs> The Horse Radio Network and the Horse Radio Network hosts are not responsible for statements made by guests on the Horse Tip Daily. Please use your own judgment when listening to the tips on this show.